So welcome again to the AFT Construction Podcast. And the purpose of this podcast is not just to be construction-based. You know, many of our listeners come from all different industries and small business, and the whole intent is to bring on guests that are experienced in small business and can help us with methods and uh, ethos and management tools that help us better run our business. And in addition to that, we do bring on designers and architects and other professionals just to share little tidbits of information and today was no different we were super excited to have on steve basic and steve has his own architecture firm uh, in the new england area and has an amazing background he does a lot of education in the building science realm a great instructor and adds so much to our industry so we wanted to have him on to share his expertise and advice and just a quick background so steve studied architecture at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston uh, for five years. Upon completion, he was hired on and worked for the Building Science Corporation. And his mentor was Joe Stebrick, who is a building science guru, and we actually had him on the podcast uh, during our Vegas build show at, at KBiz IBS back in January. But Steve offers just so much insight and information with design and how to incorporate not only beautiful architecture, but also... Um, something that's going to perform and stand the test of time. So definitely stay tuned for this episode. You'll really enjoy it. And thanks for tuning in. So I'm Brad Levitt and welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast today. And we're very fortunate to bring on Steve Basic. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Brad. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on for a few reasons. You know, you and I have crossed paths um, over the last year and a half or so. And, and I've been a big fan of yours through social media. And I know a lot of other builders that just speak so highly of you. And you've been such a proponent of, you know, building technology and uh, green and sustainable and net zero and all this, you know, everything that we're trying to achieve as a builder. And th- that's the biggest reason I want to bring you on is just to share that expertise with us. Awesome. I'm, I'm here and willing. So it's, it's not <laughs> so a let- problem. I, yeah, had a great, so, I had a great teacher. You know, we, we both have a, a mutual friend that we look up to, Joe Stieber. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I learned very early on, Joe's, Joe's heart was in sharing knowledge. And, you know, I try and foster that as, as best I can to take. I mean, this knowledge that I have is, yes, it's mine, but I got it from a whole bunch of people, just like Joe got his from a whole bunch of people that got it from a bunch of people. And, you know, we're just sending it down the line. So trying to do my best at it. So so before we dive into this, you know, explain to our listeners, you know, we Joe had a little tutorial there in Vegas when you and I were there. But, uh, you know, how did that relation start with Joe? So Joe, I, I was uh, I had graduated architecture school, got out of architecture. I was probably about a year out of it. And Joe went to the college that I went to to give a talk and the department head of the architecture department was in the back of the room hanging out with Betsy while Joe was giving a lecture to the, the school. And Betsy had talked about how they had just gotten the Building America contract, that they're looking for an employee, someone that can help them out. And I was really good friends with the department head. And, you know, I'd, I because I went in the Marine Corps, I was four years kind of displaced from all the other architecture students so i was a little um older i won't say any more mature but certainly (laughs) older and uh and he said you know what i think i have just the right guy for you and so he called me that evening and said hey you know betsy pettit's going to be calling you to set up a time to come out and meet and literally this was like a thursday night and saturday afternoon 
I'm down in Brookline sitting in their living room talking about, you know, do I want to come work for Building Science Corporation? And uh, they hired me and, uh, you know, I was there for almost 10 years. Started in their basement in Brookline. That's incredible. And and for those listening that don't know Joe, so Joe Stebrick is, you know, one of the godfathers, if you will, right, of building science. And so you were able to learn firsthand under his wing. Yeah, I tell people, you know, as an architect, that was my master's and PhD is, you know, walking the halls daily with, you know, it, with Joe. But there, there's also all the supporting cast of uh, Coda, um, Armin Rudd, Neil Moyer, John Straub. Gus Handegord, the Yost brothers, Betsy, you know, when, when you're hanging out with those people that are doing nothing but trying to push this large rock uphill, you're forced to learn something. You know, even if you were against it, you were still forced to learn. So it was uh, it was certainly an exceptional experience for a young architect. So, so why do you think it's been so difficult? I know we're taking a deviation here, but, you know, from a building science side, why has it been so difficult to get some of these understandings and methods that a lot of which have been around for a long time, but we don't practice as contractors around the country. I think, you know, for, for the first time in building history, we're, we're asked to think harder than we ever have. And I also think that we don't have the right tools to pose the right answers that we had say 20 years. I mean, Think about what we did 25 years ago. There was probably two wall assemblies on the market, right? You built two by four, you put plywood, put tar paper on. And if you wanted to be real exceptional, you built the wall on a two by six. And those were your two options. Think about what your options are nowadays. I mean, everything from a bale of hay to, um, you know, some pretty exotic uh, materials from Europe to, you know, wool insulation and, and all these things. So trying to understand and how to how to set up a set of priorities to ask the right questions to develop the right walls and because we don't have that full understanding it it instills a lot of fear in designers and builders because obviously builders like yourself the minute you kind of switch gears it imposes a certain level of risk that is uncomfortable and nobody likes being uncomfortable you know that's a great point what i've seen is in building we kind of our meth, you know, we're kind of in our own methods, if you will. So it's it's whatever's easy for us in a way that, you know, our engineers and architects are taught a certain way. So they design and structurally it's engineered a certain way. So we get stuck in these patterns, you know, that we continue to do because it's difficult to make those changes. It's difficult to think outside the box and say, what other information's out there? How could we do advanced framing? How could we really change the structure to now optimize the envelope. And, and I see that I see from just an engineer architect level, it's difficult to get them mentally there. It's difficult for us as builders to get our installers there and our labor force. Yeah. I mean, trying to get you, you, you're asking, you know, five trains to get on different tracks all at the same time and be happy about it and feel like they're not at risk, which is a huge challenge. And even though we have people like Joe who's been out there for the last, you know, 40 some odd years preaching this stuff, it's still a challenge to try and get up to speed. And you don't, you know, you're trying to get that right list of, okay, I worry about this first, I worry about that second, and then I worry about this and make appropriate decisions. It's a challenge. And the other thing is, is our building industry, it's like everything else in the world, it's become a lot smaller. 
I mean, 40 years ago, a builder in Boston had no idea what they were doing in Texas. Probably didn't care either. And now with Instagram and all these other things and lectures, people flying all over the country, going to conferences, you get a taste of, you know, what they're building in Washington State in Oregon or Minnesota, North Dakota or Boston. And they're slightly different, even though they're the same climate zone. People get certain materials, certain places, and build a certain way. And then that, you know, as a builder in Boston, you sit there and say, oh, should I be doing these details that they're doing out in the Northwest and vice versa? So it, it becomes a challenge there, too, because that just imposes more options. And we, we get fewer and fewer answers, but we probably get more options on the table daily than we do answers. Now, that's good perspective. I, I have seen that there are more options, but at the same time, there's a lot more knowledge being shared. You know, influencers such as yourself are being, you know, willing to teach and start build shows where, you know, us builders can can look at this and become educated and make sure that we're doing the most proper construction we can to build the best product that's going to be sustainable for our client. And And so talk to us about that, Steve. I mean, one of the issues that most of us have as we're getting into this movement or in construction, you know, at pre-construction, you know, we're working with a traditional format of designing a house and then we're trying to apply, you know, building science techniques, you know, whether it be green or sustainable. So how is that method, how should it start or what are you doing different from the front end? I, I think, you know, for, for builders in general, one of my common kind of teaching principles is, is that, if you build house number two the same way you built house number one, you're failing yourself and you're failing the client because there's something you should have learned when you built house number one that you should have then been able to apply to house number two as an improvement. Now, that could be a business improvement. It could be a building performance improvement. It could be something as simple as let's add a couple more air leakage details and see if we can get where we were at three down to or five, or where we at five down to three, well, let's see if we can get down to two or 2.5 now. But I think there should be this constant strive to get a little better. I mean, if you're a builder and you're going to be in business for 30 years, the house you build in year 30 should be just totally eclipsing the house you built in year one, right? They, they, they should be different. Yeah. And you should push your manufacturers, every one of them. They're, they're working hard. I, I talk to manufacturers all the time. And when, they, when they're coming to town, I have a couple of them. They call me. We go out to dinner, and it's just simply a chat. Hey, what's new? What's going on? My, the same with my insulator. He's local, but I probably have dinner with him every quarter. And it's certainly to say hi. He's a nice guy. We work well together. But more so, it's it, is there anything new coming out? Or did you buy new machinery? Is there some other way that we can install rock wool or, or cellulose or whatever? Is there a cheaper way we should be doing this? But something. Always, always upward pressure to try and make this better. So based on your experience then, Steve, when you're looking at designing a home, are there certain aspects of the home you should be focused on? I mean, you brought up air leakage, right? So should we be looking at advanced framing techniques? Should we be looking at mechanical design? You know, what are some key things that all architects, engineers, and builders should be aware of from the front end? I think that, you know, we should be aware of all, you know, as many options that are available. Now, that doesn't mean we incorporate all those options, but I, I do think as a building professional, when a client comes to us to build a certain product and they say, okay, well, hey, 
what if I threw another 20 grand at this? What, what do we do then? As building professionals, we better have the answer because if not, then we're failing them. So we should understand kind of what that ladder of performance is and what are the priorities. Certainly water is the number one killer of buildings. And people have heard me say, you know, if it don't last, it don't matter. So you can you can build our whatever kind of wall you want. But if we're putting it in a dumpster because there's a failed window leak or water management system, then it, it really doesn't matter what the R value is or whatever certification you think you're striving for. The first certification should be leak-free. And, you know, that's uh, probably the most important thing. And I think the other thing for designers and engineers and such and, and builders is that we should really concentrate. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of proportional design. And when I say proportional design, what I mean is I probably shouldn't be building an R40 wall and R80 roof and putting R3 windows in the wall, mm -hmm. right? So I, I need to figure out how do I bump up the windows or build a wall proportional to those selections. But I, I don't want to get kind of, uh, what you call it, unlevel on those decisions. I want them to be somewhat across the board. And the other thing is, is make a priority of the things I can't change, right? Air leakage and insulation, I can always come back in a lot of attics and throw a little more insulation in there in two years. I can't swap out the windows. And from a remodeling perspective here in New England, one of the big challenges is, is we have these houses with, you know, 40, 50 year old windows. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this addition remodeling. Are we swapping out all the windows? Cause that's usually a 30, 40, $50,000 price tag to get mm -hmm. all the windows swapped out. And it's like, if, if we make those, and, and the sad thing is, is I can go down the street and see somebody putting in damn near the same window in a new house and that's discouraging because we're, we're here fixing one and then four four doors down it's they're putting in the same thing or pretty damn close to it so well and part of that probably has to do with a little education too is right helping the customer the end user understand because we do understand that everything's driven off budgets so we have to be conscious of that for our client but how can we wisely spend those dollars where you know, it's easy for our clients to get distracted maybe with a $30,000 oven, right? So, yeah. but, you know, how do we help them see the value of a window package or architectural features that have overhangs to protect those windows, right, from heat? Well, I think that, you know, the, the first level of education is to ourselves because we can't be the teachers that foster these great ideas to clients unless we get somewhat of a good handle. So I think... It's our professional responsibility to kind of personally grow, excuse me, and understand what what some of these options are. And there, there's a lot of stuff out there. And, you know, there's a lot of these companies that literally spend, you know, millions of dollars on reps. I mean, when was the last time you had your rep come in and talk about windows and, and not talk about, hey, how cool, how big can we get? Can I get a 14-foot window? But really talk about What's, what's the next level of performance? If I had a client that just wanted to go from the same windows we use there, Tommy, what, what would be the next suggestion for them or set up a meeting with you to, to talk about what are those options? Um, you know, one of the funny things, Brad, is I, I get a lot of clients that come to me for energy efficient homes, certainly, but that doesn't mean they even understand what an energy efficient home is. They just know that there's that label out there. So when we get into talking about it, I've had people wanting passive houses and I say, well, we'll go with triple glazed windows. And they're like, well, what's a triple glazed window? 
but this is a right. person that wants a passive house, but they clearly don't have the education to understand what what the components are that they're they're really seeking. So that that personal education is is huge. And you know, if you, if you're an architect or builder and you just want business as usual, then I guess you know we're we're not going to change that. But if you're looking for a market advantage, I think you know being that guy that does something a little different is the one that a lot of people want. That's super sound advice because, uh, you know, it's really easy as we're designing a home and because of social media, our clients will see a steel window. I want that steel window look or I want this thin profile. So we get obsessed on how does that architectural series work for the window and how's it look? Whereas we need to be educating ourselves with our window reps, not just styles, but performance, right? Like you mentioned, you know, the two, three, four glazed windows and what goes into that? You know, what's our U value and how does that now incorporate with the house performance? Because then we can leverage the client and say, look, we understand we want to look. We want this modern contemporary house. Well, here's our options, but let's keep in mind the glazing. And this is very important for a builder such as us in Phoenix where it can get extremely warm in the summer. And we need these buildings to perform, you know, so we don't have a lot of leakage. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, people in, in the kind of southern building belt of the United States don't think, oh, well, we, we're not we're not this cold climate. We don't need to do what they do up in Minnesota. And my comment to them always is, is do you pay for energy? Because if you <laughs> do, you probably want to retain it as long as you possibly can to make it its highest value. So just because you live in the south doesn't mean, okay, we just pump air conditioning in and we can leave the doors open and let it run outside. You know, it's uh, you're paying for it. It's a cost, and there's a value in comfort and health, and and again, it's even beyond just the the heating and energy efficiency equation. It's the water management issue. It's durability issues. It's maintenance issues, right? Yeah. Someone that I, can afford a five million dollar house, they want to play golf. They don't want to be there to meet the painter Saturday morning to to fix their house. Yeah, that is so true. And and it's funny you bring that up because you know the terminology we use is um, air conditioned space right air livable air conditioned space and up in colder climates they'll use heated space you know so different terminology but in essence it's the same you know value for energy it's the same thing you're, you're buying energy somewhere somebody's taking some type of fuel and they're turning it into energy that you're going to turn into cooling or heating somewhere in the country so it doesn't really matter the equations still pretty much the same that you want to convert the energy as inexpensively as possible and then you want to hold on to it as long as you possibly can and you know so, that's the secret yeah absolutely and you made the comment you talked about one of the biggest enemies which we all understand is water infiltration you know water intrusion you know because of all the issues we have with water so throughout your years of experience in consulting and designing and visiting projects i mean what are some areas we should focus on as builders, architects, engineers, where you have typically seen water issues? So, I mean, how, how style certainly plays a role, right? We, we've all seen the flat roof or parapeted building that has absolutely no overhangs. And then you put these nice big window holes in those walls and then ask everything not to leak. It's it's kind of like taking your fisherman's hat and then cutting the brim off of it and saying, okay, I need to keep water off my face. You, know, <laughs> you can't you can't you can't do one without the other. So um, you know I think a lot a large portion of it 
um, starts with design. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be allowed to build houses with parapets and flat roofs and all of that, because I have. But I'll tell you, I get a few sleepless nights when I do those kinds of designs as opposed to the one that has the 30-inch roof overhang. Because that one there, I, I sleep pretty darn comfortable. Because the, the number one rule of water is, is you know, get rid of it as fast as you can. And if I don't allow it to be a problem, then it can't be a problem. So, you know, d design is certainly, you know, the first the first battle. But, but then working with all your manufacturers and, and having the knowledge of what's the proper installation for a window. And when I say what's the proper installation, I'm not saying how do I keep water out. It's more what's the proper installation should water get in because mother nature really doesn't lose many battles she's a, a pretty formidable opponent and uh, eventually she gets there i i see a lot of people on instagram they put all these posts up oh i use this tape oh i use this you know wh whatever sealant and my first question that i always tell them to ask is the minute you think you're keeping water out of a system, the first question you should ask yourself is what happens if water gets in? Because my my time there at Building Science and doing building investigations, we, we never investigated a building that kept water out, right? We, we always investigated buildings that had water in that couldn't get out. And that was a huge problem. Or they got it, the water got in real easy. So you, you really need to pay attention that it's, it's not so much about keeping water 100% out. It's just managing it and working with Mother Nature. So, so how would that be applied? I mean, if we look at it for like a stucco, which we do a lot of here, you know, it's really important that we have air gaps, right? Stucco is inherently going to suck in the water like concrete. And so if we have air channels um, separating where as that water does come in, we can drain that, you know, and drain it through the walls, through the floor, through the weave screen before – it gets to the house membrane or waterproofing or but in windows are you are you recommending you have some sort of drainage like a multi-slider in the bottom a sill plate where everything can drain yeah i think there's some type of system that suggests that if water gets behind my primary um weather barrier, barrier how do how does water get back out because it will so does that mean that we have pans under all of our doors and, you know, up here, a lot of times, I'll, I do slab on grade homes here, and we'll just we'll put a two-by-four, two-by-six, whatever whatever the wall is, we'll drop one of those in the slab to give us this pan that's built into the slab, and then we'll build it out of that pan, meaning shim the door or, or fur it up. But that gives us that low spot where we have a place for water to go should it get into the system and then drain. We'll have an effective way to drain it out to the outside. But there's, there's probably not any system I can think of on a wall that probably wouldn't work better with an airspace. Hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. I've seen now a lot of the... Um exterior door you know multi-sliders that we're working with out in phoenix because that's a big design element for our homes out here and they are doing these you know pans that go under the slider and then actually go underneath um you know we have drains underneath the floating floor whether it be pavers or you know tile that's applied to the patio and so we're creating a gap so that way as water comes in that it can still drain under the tile and get out away from the house especially in an area as you mentioned where you don't have a big overhang Right, right. And, and, and gravity's free energy, right? It so is. Use, yeah. it, use it to your advantage. 
Yeah, and our patios always slope away, which is what you want. And so that's what you're mentioning. You know, on windows, you know, if you have a windowsill, you know, here our HOAs will dictate, okay, windows have to be set back eight inches, you know, on the front elevation and certain sides, six inches. So the good thing is it allows us to create some negative slope away from the window, you know, when we get that driving monsoon rain. Right. And, and I think it's really important that clients, you know, part of that education process is, Clients need to understand that too, because they're obviously footing the bill. But there's there's a there's a totally different cost than installing a you know one of those multi slide doors in a water managed system versus just having an opening in the framing, taping it off with some zip tape or whatever, and and calling it a day. There's there's a different cost than that, but that cost is totally related to durability, maintenance, and longevity. But, so how do you manage that as an architect when you have a client or builder come in and now you're trying to do two things? You're trying to design a home that's going to perform but still incorporate beauty in that design. So how are you managing that? Because there are some things that maybe look great on a picture, but you know pra- practicality and real life will have issues in the future. So how do you kind of manage that communication? And it, it, it's a it's a huge challenge because – Probably, I don't know, 75% of the time I win, 25% of the time I don't win. Um, you know, up here, we have a lot of people that the, the multi-slide and folding doors are slowly creeping into our um, region up here. But we also have those uh, big double sliders that kind of meet in the middle. So you can get an you know, eight-foot opening and they, they park on two side lights of equal length. And I've seen those a lot where after a year or two, you start accumulating a little pile of snow at that joint because it's it's two operable pieces of doors that are trying to give you this airtight, watertight closure. And it might work for a number of years, but I've seen a lot of them fail. And I'll have that conversation with homeowners saying, you know, I just, I would never put in that door. I think it's a bad idea, but you know, if you want to put it in, I'm, I can't, you know, I, I can't, can only do so much. You ask me for my professional opinion, I give it to you. If you want to roll the dice, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I wouldn't do it. So do you see a lot of that? Because, I mean, you've seen in Phoenix, you know, we have, for most of the year, you know, it's good weather. I mean, it, with the exception of driving rain in monsoon season, if we keep overhangs, we're, we're pretty safe except for the heat so we have these massive multi-sliders and is it mostly due to weather do bugs i mean what what's a big reason they're not doing them there in in your part of the country yeah i mean part of it is is that you know it's the expanse and your your um how can i say this? your duration of use is probably you know three or four times ours i mean you can yeah. probably still open that door in december at christmas time and have a party on the patio. Yeah. Um, it would get pretty ugly here if we <laughs> opened a multi-slide door in November or even October. So, um, so we don't, we don't have that luxury. So a lot of people look at it as, you know, we can look at it as we, we can put in that 20 foot multi-slider and it's 30,000 or $40,000, whatever it is, or we can put in one patio door and put in a bunch of fixed side lights or glazing there to be one big window opening that you still can move in and out of it. You don't get the full opening, but it's an opening you're only going to use for, a, you know, two, three months out of the year. And even then, 
you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in New England in August at about 7 p.m. <laughs> when the sun goes down, the mosquitoes carry you away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so well, we just, <laughs> there, there's really not a good time. They're, I don't know, up here I think they're more of a kind of token of something that's cool in my house than something that's a real practical. practical. Well, that's good insight because that was going to be my question is, so what's your alternative when you say, hey, I, I, you know, where you have a slider that opens, you know, closes in the middle and then opens to either side, you know, what's the alternative? But that is good. You could put like a French door or an open door on one side and then just have a bunch of fixed panels. So you still get that natural light, right? You still get that, you know, that view. It's just now you're safeguarded from the elements. And and how that ties into performance is when... I do a lot of work with European windows. So when you look at a European window, the cheapest one is the fixed window. I can buy I can buy a window that's you know 13, 14 foot wide, six foot tall, that's triple glazed, big picture window, fixed unit for probably twenty five hundred bucks. That is just you know incredibly cheap given the performance that it's getting. So if you understand that, then now I can go to the client and say, hey. We can give you a whole wall of glass here. You get one door that goes in and out. I get that. But the other seven months out of the year, when the climate is really challenging, you got some of the best glazing in the world on your wall there, providing comfort and, you know, health and durability throughout those winter months. So having that education is huge. Well, and from a peace of mind, I mean, they're optimizing the views, but then from us, from a performance, if it's triple glazed, there's no water infiltration, right? Because it's a fixed window. You don't have to worry about something being operable. Right. You know, that's where it gives a lot of peace of mind to us. I love fixed windows myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing when you get into it. You know, a lot of people, it, occasionally I get the one homeowner that wants a, a real, you know, we want a real energy efficient house, passive house. And and then they want to talk about making every window operable. And I was like, well, it's kind of contradictory to what you're doing. You're asking to build the healthiest, most, you know, the, the best um, environment inside. And then you're going to open the windows and bring in pollen, bring in humidity, bring in either cool or heat or whatever, chances are you're probably not opening these windows. So it's it's really to our benefit because then you, you when you could take a window package and go to half of it as fixed windows, saves you a bunch of money and you get a few more windows probably out of the deal too. So That's great advice. So now let's move this a little bit to the air leakage comment you had made. So what are, you know, we talked about how to protect from water. Now, what about air leakage? You know, what are some techniques? Do you prefer rock wool? Do you prefer spray foam? You know, and then how do we kind of seal that house from an air leakage standpoint? Yeah, so I think you need to be able to identify clearly what your air barrier is. And when I say what it is, a lot of, you know, when we're lecturing Peter and I, people say, what's the best material for an air barrier? And I'll ask, well, where are you in the house? Because it could be the slab, it could be zip wall on the outside, it could be the glass in the window. They're all air, effective air barriers. It's a matter of making the connections when the materials change. Um, you know, there's we, we do use a lot of spray foam up here in New England. There's, there are some um, regions up here where they highly frown on, on its use. And, you know, I have somewhat mixed emotions about it because... As an architect, I want to make the right environmental decisions. I want to do the right thing. Um, and But 
utmost, I want to build the right house with the right products that do the right job. And there are instances where spraying two inches of closed cell foam is the best option at hand. And with that being said, then I rely on working with my insulator to how can I assure them that we're getting the best, most environmentally friendly closed cell foam. Right. Now, you know, I, I know people, like I said, there's a lot of people that, that slam um, cell foam, but, you know, the, the reality is, is take, take a ride through Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. I mean, that, I don't think there's any other insulation that's really being used down there. So right. it's, it's not going away anytime soon. That's, right. you know, my bottom line. So what we really need to do is work with manufacturers and pressure them to get rid of the bad things and, you know, work on how do they make these products and then how do they get mixed at the job site? How do you ensure that we're getting the right product on the job site? And because it's a, it's a chemical, you know, mixing right there on the job site with all these cell phones. They come in a barrel and the gets mixed and sprayed into your wall and, and for those listening, yeah, what you're alluding to is the health side, right? The off-gassing and just the chemical composition as you're putting in closed cell or open cell, the fumes there over time, or maybe as some have alluded to with some of the lesser products that maybe could be a fire hazard. So you're just saying, you know, make sure we're using the optimum product that's out there. And yeah, in my market, it's predominantly open cell foam. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I, I work really hard at trying to understand the, the right things to do. And there's probably going to be some people listening that are, are going to say, oh, my God, I can't believe you just said that. But I, I, know, I know one gentleman that is pretty much the godfather of uh, blown in, or foam insulation. He's been doing it since probably like the mid-70s. I mean, and I've known him from my time at Building Science Corporation. And I caught up with him maybe two or three years ago. And uh, at a conference and we were just chatting, having a beer. And, and I simply asked them, I said, you know, in, in all of your time, which is we're talking 40-ish years plus years, have you ever seen a truly documented case where health was directly related to the foam installation? And he said, no. He said he didn't know of one. He said there's been certain claims and stuff, but it's never been directly tied to it. And I asked the same thing of a couple of the insulators I work with. And and I'm not saying that they don't, they're not bad, but it's it's real easy to go at the foam industry and say, oh my God, that stuff off gas is, you know, you don't you want to make sure you want to make sure the baby doesn't go in that house for the first two years. Or, you know, it's not it's it, it's not like that. I, I've used it, I've used it in a couple passive houses. I have one client that, you know, he, they're a retirement couple, and he claims it's the best environment he's ever known when he goes inside his house. And they have spray foam in there. He doesn't, he's not dying of cancer. He's not, you know, there, there's not bad things happening to him. It's, it's actually the opposite. He's had some respiratory asthma and all this stuff, and it's cleared up by living in this passive house. So that's a, yeah, that's really great insight, Steve. And I, I, I feel I've heard a lot of the same research and there are conflicting opinions with everything. But I, what I like about you is that you're having reasonable conversations, doing your part of it in research and then making sure there's applications that do fit and optimize that. Yeah. And, 
and you know the 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 latest craze is this the carbon emissions craze. I and I get that too, and I'm totally sensitive to it. I'm not trying to say, hey, let's everybody just buy a ten cylinder diesel and let's whoop it up, and and drive around, right? That's that's certainly not the the key, but. It's, it's, you know, I, I liken it to, I, I love this analogy, you know, I'll go to the grocery store and I'll see this woman in line and she's got, you know, 20 bags because, oh my God, we can't use plastic bags, right? I have to be environmentally friendly. I have my cloth bags here. We'll use them. And as I follow her out into the parking lot, she loads them into a Suburban or a Tahoe and I'm sitting there going, okay, what doesn't fit here? Right. You can't claim to be one person and then you're out there being a different person. It's <laughs> it's uh, you know, we, we need to tie it together. And the same with this carbon emissions. It's you know, the, the building industry certainly plays a role. But, you know, if if everybody that owned a car drove it 10 percent less and ate, you know, maybe 20 percent less meat and ensured that our electricity came from some type of renewable source, either site or generated by the municipality, that would be a huge, huge turnaround for what carbon emissions are doing. It's it's not just about the building. There's a whole lot of things in our lifestyle that we need to change. And I've always said that our, our culture is crisis-oriented. We don't change. <laughs> it's true. We don't change until there's a problem. So yep. that's why I, I have my... Uh, you know, quad cab Chevy pickup, I, I tell people I'm taking it upon me to use up gas as fast as we possibly can because <laughs> we're not, we're not going to change until it's all gone. Right. Yeah. But, and, and, and sometimes that crisis seems to be screamed louder for other political views, you know, so that can get a little messy, but, um, but, but going back to the air leakage and that's great insight, Steve. So, you know, we know the insulation can help. I mean, what are some other trouble areas in the house that we should be looking at to help seal you know, for well, the, a blower or test. And to the seal thing them. about air sealing is, is that it's a very low hanging fruit. I mean, what you're really talking about is, is, you know, you're, you're talking about a couple boxes of caulking or sealant or a box of tape, or, you know, I'm sure you're aware of aero barrier. They're all over down there. And I have used them on a few projects and I don't mind plugging for them. If, if you can afford it and get in that, get that into your budget, that's a, that's a hell of a way to finish off a construction build. The thing that I would warn you against is don't treat aero barrier as an alternative to good construction. Use it as a, you know, addition to some good to construction. To enhance it. Yeah. So explain to our listeners what aero barrier is for those that, that aren't familiar. So basically what aero barrier is, is uh, I forget the name of the material, but it's a, it's a material that goes airborne. And it basically finds all the little nooks and crannies in the building. And you want to do it, you know, right after drywall or before you trim it. But basically when you have the building envelope intact, they can max, mask off all the windows and doors and such. But it's it's an aerosol that um, goes out and just starts filling up all the nooks and crannies. And, and the beauty of it is, is, and this is my crude understanding, working with them the, the couple times that I've seen it done, is... You know, if you, if you have a, say, an eighth-inch crack, well, this stuff starts building up on the edges. So as it builds up, they're monitoring it with a blower door. So you can kind of pay-as-you-go um, 
when you're doing it. So you can sit there and say, okay, I, I really want to get down to 2.0 or 1.0. Well, they crank up the blower door, they monitor it, and they set in the target, and they just keep blowing this stuff in the house because it's going to latch onto the edge, and then the next level of aerosol is going to latch onto the previous level and previous level, and it's going to take that crevice and keep minimizing it until, you know, if you it's wanted full. to run it all day, then it's full. But it doesn't have to be full. You can just close it off 70% of the way, and that might get you to 2.0 or whatever your target is. So it's it's the nice thing is is it's this kind of dialed in approach which is a huge benefit because it's not an all or nothing proposition it's kind of this this is where I want to go. So that's that's a great explanation for anyone listening. And so now you know as you're thinking about air leakage and you're thinking about water leakage and all the design elements. I mean, what other main points would you recommend that we should address or consider when designing and building the home? I mean, proportional thermal levels, you know, we touched upon that a little earlier. And, you know, when you're talking about control layers, basically, what what are the things that I want to control in my environment? Water being number one, air being number two, vapor is number three, and thermal is number four. So when I see people that are boasting about, oh, yeah, I just built this really good house. I got R40 walls and an R70 roof, but they don't talk about how they're managing vapor or water, it, it really makes me a little afraid for them because they're, while it's great to talk about R values and boast about them, we have to make sure everything else gets right so that the R value actually has a long life because that's the only time insulation really matters. It's a, to me, I, I tell people insulation is a financial equation, right? If I put in a bunch more, then I save a bunch of energy. If I put in a little, I buy a lot of energy. So it's a question of how much do I want to invest and where do I want to put it? Now, the most insulation that you know you can put on the outside is always going to be the best solution. When I, when I was at Building Science, I always tell people this story. Gus, who was one of Joe's uh, mentors, he uh, came down there. We were sitting in, the, in there having lunch, and I was a young architect at the time and just said, hey, Gus, you know, I, I got you here all alone. Give me, give me the secret sauce here for what's, what's the best wall I can build. Like, what, what's the best way to insulate a wall and, and build it? He said, you know, put as much insulation on the outside of the wall as you can afford, and you'll never go wrong, you know, because it's, it's always going to work for you out there. So. So what would you recommend on the outside? You know, I've seen, uh, you know, years ago when I was in college in Utah, actually, I remember uh, there was a big home and because it was a vaulted ceiling, you know, T&G interior, what they did was they overbuilt the roof, right? And then they insulated the roof and then covered it in sheathing. And so all the insulation was done on the exterior, as you mentioned, you know, so what are some methods, you know, products out there that we could use on the exterior to help kind of beef up that insulation? Yeah, I mean, any any of the rigid foams, there's, again, though, there's environmental responsibilities that are kind of tuned to all the different rigid foams out there. There's EPS, which is expanded polystyrene. There's XPS, which is extruded polystyrene, and polyiso. So EPS usually gets the most favorable environmental rating, but it has the least R value of the bunch. You have XPS, which, you know, at R5 per inch is a good material, widely used in K 
Canada. I see a lot of Canadian Instagram posts that use XPS pretty much widespread. and But they get kind of knocked for their manufacturing processes and bringing that foam to life. You have polyiso out there, which there's always the argument of what's the true R value on it. And, you know, for me, it's like, does it really matter if I claim it to be 7.2 and it's 6.9? Mm-hmm. Is, is is there really that much of a difference? Go ahead. I'd, I'll concede. I'll, I'll even give you a 6.8. You know, you, you can even be better off with that. But um, but it's a good one. And rock wool's out there. But mm-hmm. people talk about the processes for making rock wool and that it, you know, the carbon emissions thing. So now wool insulation is out there. And, but wool insulation, while it might be really good, it's not ready for prime time it's not the cheapest thing on the market it's not anywhere near it so you know it can you get a I, I have a hard time getting a client to buy into some really good water management you know trying to bring wool insulation to the table with them it's it's a hell of a <laughs> challenge right it's right it's it's not one of the top 10 things i can bring to the table it's, it's i would love to but the reality is is i'm i'm trying to figure out what's the What's that best kind of set of modest decisions that gets me there, but gets me there successfully with the least harm to our environment? You know, one of the things that I like to talk about is we have all these discussions about, oh, my God, that's not really environmentally responsible. Oh, that's that's awful for the environment. But here's here's some shocking news to everybody out there in the building industry. The second we choose to build, we've become environmentally irresponsible, right? We're taking a set of resources from somewhere. We're accumulating them. We're forging them or making them into some product. And then we're trucking it out to a job site that people are driving their cars to, to put together, to use a certain level of energy or an exorbitant amount of energy, depending on where you live and what kind of house you buy. And, you use that energy for some kind of lifestyle. So there's nothing about that that's really environmentally responsible. It's just, you know, what's the what's the least harm we can do? We're going to do some level of harm. We're not, I don't think we can get, avoid that. We're, once you make that decision, it's just, what's the, the least level of harm we can do? That's an interesting perspective because it is true. I mean, the reality is, you know, if we're built in a home, there's resources and costs to the environment, you know, to build this home. So how can we manage that? And and then to take it a step further, as your point, the reason we need to understand these topics more is because we want these homes to be sustainable and last the test of time and not in five years or 10 years have to recycle and tear down this house and build a new one and use more resources, which is what you mentioned earlier when it comes to you could build this great house, it's well insulated, but if there's water, you're tearing it down and redoing it. Right, right. And and if I if I have a house that's say carbon friendly but it gets recycled in 30 years versus one that might be a little less carbon friendly but it lasts 80 years or 100 years in my eyes they both are doing the same thing or or the the latter might even be doing it better, right? Yeah, we yeah. had a little more initial harm but the longevity plays a major role in what we're doing. You know, that life cycle cost, if you will. So what's your favorite style then, Steve? As you know, as you're 
working in architect, do you have a favorite style you've done over the years? I, yeah, my, you know, it's funny because it's not really an architecture style. My favorite style is the one with the good client, the happy client, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know if that's a style, but it, it, as I grow older, it's like getting the 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 7,000 square foot, you know, $5 million house or what, whatever. I mean, you put whatever number you want to it, but but getting the big expensive house that has, you know, kind of unlimited financial resources, it certainly might not be as fun as the one that you're doing for say five or $600,000 addition for a couple that's extremely happy. Or I I've done like passive houses in the say $180 square foot range. And to, to know that this family just built their first house and are going to raise their two kids in a zero energy passive certified house that I designed for them, there's a lot of satisfaction. It goes a long way. So, I mean, it's it, it's cool to do big, fancy stuff too, but I, I, I have a pretty eclectic mix because I'll, I'll do everything from a two-stall garage to a, you know, seven, 8,000 square foot home that, and they're, they're all interesting to me. I, I just have this kind of, uh, um, willingness to, to just enjoy life and, uh, you know, work with good people, be happy all the time, have fun. I'm a, I'm a big guy playing with big boy Legos. Right? <laughs> That's, I, I love that you said that though, Steve. I mean, what's amazing about that. It's funny. Cause you know, on social media, a lot of us portray, you know, the latest and greatest cause it gets the most content, but where we're very similar. It's funny. Cause I, I'll have clients ask and they're like, Hey Brad, I want you to do our home, but this isn't a 20,000 square foot monster. And for me, it's the same thing. I always tell my people, I don't care if you're doing, if you're spending 100,000 or a million, and I don't care if the house is 2,000 square feet or 20,000, it doesn't matter. I just want to work for good people because it's too stressful of an industry and it's too difficult um, to, to work with difficult people. It just is. Well, and the, you know, it, for, for the younger people um, listening out there, the reality is, is think about the financial resources of the person that builds the $10 million, you know, 6,000 square foot home, right? A small leak can become a major problem for you and the builder. Yep. Whereas the, the homeowner that's, you know, doing that renovation for 400,000, they're more likely to, you know, work with you should things happen. That's, that's very sound advice. And it's, not that you want to stay out of issues because we all want to build these great homes, but sometimes issues do come up and what's your exposure, right? And who's the client on the other side and how's that relationship going to play into the warranty or to, right? If things get or, a little Or just play there. games. I, I yeah. have a builder that's a really good friend of mine that he built a house, the framer, you know, uh, it caused some problems for him. And then at the end of the project, he sent the, you know, homeowner a bunch of extras, all this money that was due. And the homeowner said, well, it's funny because, you know, not only do I not owe you that 150000 but I'm going to sue you for 150000 because that's what I think you owe me now. And they just, they had the luxury of playing games. So, yep. The small builder, you know, the lumberyard's sending him the bill month after month saying, hey, you owe us 60 grand. Hey, you owe us 70 grand or whatever that is. And the homeowner in his multi-million dollar house is just sitting there telling the lawyer, hey, you know, defer our our, uh, our meeting another month or two. Let's stretch this out. My, my wife had a really tough month. Let's see if we can push this out a month. 
and and they can play games like that and it, it becomes a, a really big challenge for somebody trying to do the right thing you know it, it's so interesting i think we could spend a whole nother conversation topic about how to vet clients and do the best to to see that because yeah as you mentioned if you're young building your company sometimes you're so excited about seeing the job getting the job you're not looking at the history of the client or their background or again you know all these little things that play into it at the end of the day you know we're for final payment which i think all of us have been on that angle at some point yeah i just i, I have a real good friend builder we were chat and we chat all the time but he was just telling me a story where he had some clients you talked about vetting clients and he had some clients call him and he's trying to set up a meeting and this and that and then the wife says you know the the husband can't make it he says okay well we need to reschedule and she's like oh i really don't want to reschedule and he says well i don't want to have a meeting without the two of you there and and she kind of you know took a little offense to that and he just basically said well i don't think i'm the right builder for you I wish you good luck, but I'm moving on. If you guys can't make the time to meet me for an initial meeting, where are we going to be seven months down the road with a small conflict? Yeah. Right. It's it's so you have to see that, and and it is tough. It's it's and he he confessed. He said it was really tough telling them to go away. But I've also had another builder that's been in the business 35 years that I highly respect and. And I often hear him tell people, you know, if I paid those people $1,000 or if I paid those handful of clients $1,000 to go away, I would have made more money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? And it's funny. It, it takes a while to learn. You only know what you know. And a similar experience, you know, I, I had been, you know, learned, you know, over the years of, of doing business development for our company. And then eventually, you know, I, I was on a call. This wasn't too long ago. And it's a conference call. The husband and wife are on the call with me because the husband was traveling. And he just starts screaming at his wife. And I'm sitting there thinking, if he's going to scream at his wife like that with me on the phone, where am I going to be in three months from now with him? And he was a lawyer. So I ended up backing out, walking away. You know, you just learn enough to know where the red flags are and say, hey, this isn't for me. Let's move on and, and we'll go fight another battle somewhere else. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and it is, it's hard, but man, you, you just, you have to, we, we always have, it, it's human nature to have the will to believe that we can make other people change, Yeah, but you can't. And, you know, so you have to take those flags for what they're worth and you have to stand up and be confident in that decision and move on. Yeah. And most psychologists will say, even if you want to change, if you have a desire to change, it's still hard to change. Right. So yeah. no, that's great sound advice, Steve. So just, a, you know, a few more questions, you know, to be sensitive to your time, you know. So I, what, what's exciting you about now? Because I know you're involved with the Build Network, you know, the Build Show, and very active in social media. So what are some things you're doing with the Build Show and with social media that's really helped your brain? I, I think it's really exciting times right now because, one, you know, we have all these different methods of building. The world is certainly getting smaller. Um, you know, the Build Show Network has totally increased my network and understanding i i mean I, w I was talking last night to the norwegian carpenter on instagram and just kind of chatting so here it is it's 11 o'clock and i was uploading some files and we're we're carrying on a conversation about building with a guy in norway it's uh, i don't know it's just it's it's pretty exciting stuff and and he found me on instagram and we chatted and he puts up cool stuff and we have a little bit of learning and hopefully someday our paths will cross. But, you know, Matt, Matt's been doing a lot of good things for a long time. I, I, part of me gets discouraged when 
I put up a video or, or he puts up a video that, you know, him and I have done together and the first 10 comments are, well, how much did that cost a square foot? Oh my God, you guys are criminals for, you know, for building that that way. It's, you have to understand that, you know, Matt is, it, in my eyes, Matt's taking it upon himself to, to place himself in this leadership role. So are some of the things he does exotic? Yeah. Are some of the things that he does probably not ready for prime time, you know, sustainable commodity um, assemblies? Yeah, probably not. But what he's trying to show you is, is that what you're doing might be wrong for these reasons, and this is the right way to do it. But we as professionals now, we have to go through and sort it out and figure out how do we take those good concepts that he's portraying there and make them fit into what we're doing. And I think the, the whole social media, if you're using it to your advantage, that's what you're trying to do. And and it's aesthetically and performance, right? You can, you can go through Instagram and, and follow all the interior designers and say, oh my God, look at that range hood. Oh my God, look at that six foot range. Look at that tile pattern. All that's great. But you can also follow those guys of, hey, that's an awesome air sealing detail. That that wouldn't be hard to incorporate. I'd just get Johnny to do this instead of what we normally do. And there you go. You've upped your game. So it's the, the world is certainly getting smaller. You just you need to pay attention. You know? I love that. And it is so true because there is so much information. And now, you know, grateful for, you know, architects such as yourself and, and Matt, he's doing some amazing things where it's easy for us now to have this constant resource. And because one of the things that's difficult is, you know, I know you shared on your podcast is you talked about how, you know, a lot of these suppliers will come in and they have their own statistics and their own research. A lot of them aren't sure where it's from, you know, as they're sharing their products. And so it's good to have another opinion, you know, that understands building science and technology and you know, what, what is true information that we can now apply in techniques that will help us be better builders? Because I think that's the hardest thing is for us to decipher. You know, we only know what the sales rep is telling us, right? Right. Right. So we need to have that kind of third-party verification somehow, some way. Do we know experienced builders that, you know, we can get into a building group? I mean, look at look at the, the grassroots uh, movement that uh, Michael Maines out of uh, – Maine started with his BS and beer. I mean, those things are popping up all over the country, you know, DC, Chattanooga, Kansas City, Springfield, Missouri, Chicago, out in the Northwest. But, and, and there's other like minded. We have one in Vermont called the Sion Group, which is Sustainable Energy Outreach Network or something like that. But it's, it's basically, you know, 20, 30 people get together the first Tuesday of every month and they talk about some aspect of building. And the the rule is, is you check your business at the door. So you walk in, You're, the people in that room are not your competitors. The people in that room are your friends. And you, you have to understand that. And it, it took me a while to understand that. And I think one of the biggest benefits of social media for me is it's it's somewhat selfish, but it provides the opportunity for a mind dump, right? I, I can't move on into the next level of stuff that I want to do until I can get rid of all the ideas that I have. So if I dump something on social media and say, hey, here's a house where we did a, a concrete list slab on grade system, 
then that forces me now to take what's the, well, well, that's the next thing you're going to do because you can't stop there. So, you know, holding on to that information is not necessarily a good thing. It's, it goes back to that. I should never build house two the way I built house one. Yep. So it forces me to get to that, that next level stuff. So like I said, I use Instagram and, you know, LinkedIn and stuff as kind of a mind dump. It's like, yeah, I did that, but let me, let me move on now. But let me find out and seek out how do how do I improve that and where do I go from there? So, and whether that's helpful to us, I mean, if you're trying to experience all this on yourself, you know, trial and error, it's a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes or other people's understanding, right? It just yeah. accelerates that that growth. Yeah, Peter, my partner in speaking, Peter Yost, one of his favorite quotes is, is we, none of us will live nearly long enough to make all the mistakes ourselves, right? right. So, so we have to share in them. And yeah. there there are a lot of people on Instagram that it's like you they put stuff on. And one guy, I don't know if you saw it, the one guy that just was driving in the Bobcat and he was trying to compact the dirt too close to the foundation wall. And he basically blew out the foundation, the concrete block foundation wall, and rolled the bobcat right on its side. But he's like, I knew I was too close. And I don't know. It was it was funny. Anyways. Yeah, it's it. funny. And it's like, oh, yeah. yeah Hopefully we I learn from that. Do right? all the work. But, but yeah, we, we need to learn from each other's mistakes. So it's like we, we have to stop being afraid. And don't be afraid to make a mistake. Obviously, we don't want to, you know, make a huge mistake where we have to rebuild the house. But um, but we need to always be pressing forward in, in a very educated fashion. Well, that's great. So, so with this then, Steve, what, what are you excited about next? You know, any big projects or anything upcoming? So, yeah, so we have a bunch of projects and a couple projects that I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm doing one with Jake that we're putting the whole house on concrete piers, but it has some cantilevered stuff to it, which is, is pretty exciting stuff that, you know, I sent it to the engineer with a bunch of uh, parameters that I would say were just short of a dream. And he came back and said, yeah, we can probably pretty much make all of that work. So that, that made me extremely happy. But what I'm really excited about is that there, we have plans in, in the next year or so where I'm going to have the ability to take all of this information and knit it into kind of an educational fashion to share it with people. So hopefully the, the industry, you know, turns out to be, a, we, we're in a better place in a year or two um, because of it. So I'm, I'm really excited about that, that we're, we're taking these couple projects really public and, and making that information available. And it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot well, of fun. And we're super grateful for, you know, industry leaders such as yourself that are willing to share that experience and knowledge and take time out of your day. And, and so for those listening, you know, how can they find you, you know, your social media handles, website? Yeah. So I, I have a website, Stephen Um, I also am on Instagram at Stephen Basic architect. I try and keep it pretty much the same brand. Um, I have a couple friends where we have the unbuild it podcast where Peter Yost and Jake Bruton and myself, we, we talk about building science concepts, and we basically, we call it the unbuild it because we take building assemblies and building science concepts and break them down to common denominators, and, and you get the architect, the building scientist, and the builder's viewpoint. So occasionally we're, we're in conflict with each other, but a lot of times we're, we're in alignment, but we all have different sets of filters in how we 
move that information through our own personal systems. So there's there's a benefit to all there, um, whether you're an architect and trying to understand how a builder thinks or how other architects think. It's it's pretty cool, I think. Well, thank you. I'll make sure we get those tagged, your podcast, website, Instagram handle, and anything on social media. But thanks again, Steve, for sharing all that knowledge with us today. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you very much, man. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity here to join you today. A big thanks to Steve for joining us today. And next week on the podcast, we're going to bring on Lisa Hausman, and she's the VP of Marketing with House, and just has tremendous experience uh, in advertising, consulting, marketing, social strategy for big brands. And of course, she's done some amazing things at House. So super excited to bring her on, and it'll be a great, great episode. 